if you are a guest with us and have not been part of our services this year, um, what we've been doing is working our way through uh, St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians that we have in the Bible, actually his second letter in total. And uh, we are pausing every so often to think deeply about what Paul is saying because he addresses all of the big issues that our culture faces. And as we've been looking at this, uh, over the last three weeks we've been considering Paul's instructions about marriage and singleness uh, that he sets out in 1 Corinthians 7. And we looked first at Paul's general principle that underpins all of his advice in these chapters. And that is that whatever situation you're in, don't focus on the situation, focus on how you can walk with God in it. And actually that that is a driving motif of Paul's life. That's how he learned to rejoice when he was in prison and rejoice when he was free. To rejoice when he was supported by friends and to rejoice when he was betrayed. And he goes through a whole list of stuff in uh, the end of Philippians. And really the, the way that you do that, the way that you have that mind, is that you learn not to look at the circumstances around you, but to look at Jesus. But having said that, we are all in uh, different circumstances. And last week, uh, my aunt uh, Rosalind came and spoke about the challenges and the opportunities presented by a life of singleness. Actually, this passage is a ringing endorsement of the advantages of the single life. Paul is fully sold out on the advantages of being single. He actually says at one point, I wish everybody could be single, but then I guess that's not everybody's gift. I emphasise that because that's so different from our culture's perception of dignity and value. The idea that you actually need a relationship to complete you would have been laughable for Paul. Nevertheless, there are challenges and uh, presented by a single life. And if you are somebody who hasn't had a chance to uh, listen to that talk, whether you are presently in a relationship or not, I really do recommend it because it was very insightful. Uh, uh, insightful, practical uh, guidance from somebody who has lived a single life, a very, very fruitful spiritually and practically uh, fruitful single life. Uh, and reflections on what it means to live as a Christian in that way. But this week we're going to look at how we should understand and treat Christian marriage. I'm going to use the phrase Christian marriage throughout, uh, rather than just marriage, because there are different ways to think about marriage. And uh, we're finding that as we move further and further away from a situation where Christianity was the default idea in the West, you have very different ideas about what marriage is emerging, and what marriage is for emerging. And so we're talking here particularly about a Christian view of marriage. And it's an important topic for all of us, whether we are presently married or not. Just as we are all called to be single at some point in our lives, and yet in God's service, so we are all called to support the marriages of those around us, and more fundamentally, to participate in the marriage of Christ and the church. To put it another way, Paul's practical advice about marriage is a picture of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so it is enormously relevant for each one of us. It's hard to give a lunchtime summary. Again, if you're a guest with us every uh, week, I try and give a pithy one-sentence summary of everything that I'm going to say. And... uh, 
It's hard here because Paul actually works through three separate situations. He talks first to people who are married and their marriage is going well. Then he talks to Christians who are married and struggling in their marriage. Then he talks to Christians who are married to a non-Christian. So it's hard to pick out a thread that goes through them all. But I think if I had to pick one thing, it would be this. That marriage should be sacrificial. It should be committed And it is an opportunity to serve God. And in that, it pictures our relationship with Christ. Marriage should be sacrificial, committed, and an opportunity to serve God. And in that, it pictures our relationship with Jesus Christ. It pictures our relationship with Jesus Christ, which is sacrificial, committed, and provides an opportunity to serve God. So with that, I'm going to read... Um, The words are going to be on the screen if you don't have a Bible, but I do encourage you to read long in a Bible. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 7 and verses 1 to 25 and then 29 to 31. I've basically picked out the bits that are talking about marriage. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It's in inverted commas because that's their slogan. They were saying that. Paul's going to say that's not true. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority of her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way the husband doesn't have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual agreement, a mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that you were all as I am. But each one of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that. Now to the unmarried and widows, I say it's good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they can't control themselves, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. So this is actually Paul quoting from Jesus now. Uh, which doesn't happen that often, that Paul directly quotes from Jesus, but he's directly quoting something Jesus said. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, that is to those who are married to non-Christians, I give this command. I say this, and this is I speaking, not the Lord. In other words, Jesus didn't speak to this, but Paul is saying this is what he thinks. If any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through, unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And then skipping forward to verse 29. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. 
From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. This is the word of God. I'm going to work through this passage and explain how it applies. So uh, this is going to be a slightly different type of sermon from the sermons that I normally give. And I'm literally just going to work through paragraph by paragraph. But before I begin, I I want to point out something that you may have picked up from the reading. Paul's tone is very different dealing with these issues than it was before. So when he was dealing with uh, Christians who were suing each other and trying to put each other out of business, he was very, very firm. You have already been completely defeated before you even begin. And that actually characterises Paul's uh, statements from chapter 1 through to chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. Beginning with chapter 7, Paul changes his tone. He gives principles for how we should live, but he also recognises exceptions. His desire for us to live good and holy lives remains, but now there is also an acknowledgement of the many different situations and challenges that as a pastor he faced in a broken world that's waiting for redemption. What I mean to say is, these issues, particularly around human relationships, are not always black and white. Uh, if you'll forgive the phrase. They're not always clear-cut. What Paul is saying is, I recognise that there are deep-seated principles at work here, but that you'll find that as you put them into practice, there are grey situations, there are times that arise, there are people whose lives have been hurt, there are people who are broken, there is a situation occasionally we'll find where there is no good answer. So what do you do? In that situation, Paul gives advice, but he doesn't say, here is a definitive guide to how to live out every different situation of human relationships. And he couldn't. Now that actually requires us to come to the Bible with a slightly different mind than we normally do, or than we can normally do. It's very tempting to look at it and say, what I want is a clear set of rules that I can live by. And I will live right up to the limit of those rules and I'll look for the loophole. And if I can find the loophole, then I'll drive my truck right through it. What Paul is actually saying, and and a lot of the New Testament writers have this perspective as well, is I want you to think differently. I want you to aspire to the highest that you can. I want you to aspire to live out the principle as best you can. And yes, there will be times when it's not possible. And work out how you should do And what you should do in those situations. But with the aspiration that you fulfil the principle rather than looking for the loophole. It's the difference between rules with clear limits and principles that you try and apply in life. I just say that at the beginning because it can be frustrating what I'm saying. is You might want to say, well, hang on a minute, I've got this friend or I'm in this situation where this, 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 this happened. What does Paul say I should do about that? And you're not going to find out that answer from uh, this talk. Because he doesn't give an answer. What he gives is a way to think about the problem that helps us to arrive at an answer. 
helps us to think godlily about it. He puts it in another way of saying, I want you to be renewed in your minds, changed in the way you think about things. So how, how does Paul think about Christian marriage? By Christian marriage, I mean marriage between Christians who are seeking to live uh, as Jesus taught. Christian marriage is designed to be exclusive, sacrificial, mutual, built on mutual love and respect, and a priority for those involved. Now, each of these qualities is a reflection of what we see in Jesus Christ. It's a marriage is actually a picture of Jesus. It's exclusive. Each man, Paul says, should have sexual relations with his wife, and each woman with her own husband. In a Christian marriage, faithfulness is essential. Faithfulness to one person is essential. That is what it means to be married as a Christian. It is to give yourself to one other person. Uh, The uh, great Archbishop Cranmer put it beautifully when he wrote the Book of Common Prayer. Forsaking all others, I pledge myself to thee. Forsaking all others. It is committed. Christian understandings of marriage and intimacy, and for those who were here when we were considering a Christian view of sex and sexual relationships, will remember this. There is a, a commitment to intimacy, to vulnerability that is designed into us, but which requires absolute commitment from the other person. I can't be 100% vulnerable with you if I do not believe that you are committed to me. If I believe that there is a risk that you might always leave me, I have to hold something back from you. Because I have to protect myself. It requires exclusivity. As it says in Genesis 2.24, the husband and wife become one flesh. And you could say, well, that's, what's the deeper theological principle? What's the idea underlying that? It is that Jesus Christ is totally committed to you if you are a Christian. Paul says in Ephesians 5, I'm actually talking when I talk about marriage about Jesus Christ and his relationship with the church. If you are a Christian this morning, Christ is so committed to you that he will never leave you. You can be completely vulnerable with him, you can give yourself totally to him because he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And if Jesus Christ says that to us, husbands and wives should say that to each other. It's sacrificial. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband in the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Isn't this totally different from the way we're trained to think about human relationships? In Christian marriage, each partner seeks the good of the other ahead of their own. That is what Christians understand love to be. Paul is going to give a great uh, list of the qualities of love in chapter 13. That's often read at weddings. Love is patient, love is kind. Love bears with wrongs. And so on. Underlying them all is this total commitment to the good of someone else. That is what it means to love them. 
It's how you can love someone even when you don't particularly like them. It's radically distinct from contemporary understandings of relationships. There is a a deep-seated morality at work in the world at the moment in the West. And it thinks of relationships as essentially being bargains between autonomous individuals who protect themselves. So this manifests itself in lots of different ways. I can think when Heather and I were getting married, we got married at 23... Um, It's not actually that young if you look at the median ages of when people are getting married, but a lot of our friends who were people from a particular type of educated middle class background said to us, how do you know that you are going to want to be married to this person for the rest of your life? Aren't you too young? Shouldn't you wait? Now I respect them for voicing their concerns to me, but underpinning each one of their concerns was the need to protect oneself. The, the conception that actually I am in this relationship as myself and I'm holding myself back from you and I'm autonomous. My interests are always at, at having priority. As a Christian, my own happiness is not the main focus of myself of my, uh, or of my marriage. The aim of Christian marriage is not life, health and the pursuit of happiness for myself. My main job as a Christian husband is to prioritise my wife's happiness. My body is not my own. I'll give you a practical example of this. It's not going to be inappropriate, don't worry. I hate getting up in the mornings. I hate it. Heather, however, needs more sleep than I do. We've lived with each other long enough to know that our bodies just don't recover in the same way. Mine recovers more quickly than hers does. So I get up every day before her in order to go and make tea for her and to start the process of making breakfast for my children. Now, I'm not saying this to guilt trip husbands. I can even see the wives talking about it now. (laughs) Where's my breakfast in bed? I can tell you, I get paid back in other ways, okay? They, They... The point is, her happiness, her spiritual growth, is my priority. Actually, there's a particular responsibility on husbands. Ephesians 5, when we we preached through Ephesians, we thought about this. uh, That husbands have a particular responsibility. Your body is stronger than your wife's, almost certainly. It's not a value judgment, it's just a statement of fact. If you were to have a fight, the chances are the husband would win. Please don't. That strength brings, it's a privilege, and privilege has to be exercised for the good of others. Christian marriage is sacrificial. Paradoxically, actually I find that I am at my happiest when I make Heather happy, and she is at her happiest when she makes me happy. As Jesus said, it is better to give than to receive. That's how you've been designed. You're not working against your design, you're working with it. This is the mindset we find in Jesus. Again, it's not that marriage is the high point, it's that it's pointing to something beyond itself. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, said, I came not to be served, but to serve, and to give myself as a ransom for many. Whether you are married or not married, Jesus Christ put your life ahead of his own. Prioritise your future ahead of his. 
prioritize your happiness in the long run before his happiness. God himself models that for us. It is mutual. Christian marriage is mutual. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. It's a partnership, not a hierarchy. I think it's important. Uh, we, we have women preaching here. There are messages I pick for men to preach and women to preach. I think this is important for men to preach because I need to say this as a man. There has often been a tendency in men to pre- presume that their voice should be the dominant one in their marriage. Um, it gets, it gets uh, trotted out as who has the final word. Now, I've never actually been in a conversation where I've thought to myself, this is the final word and I will have it. Except in a row when we're both trying to have the final word. It's a partnership, not a hierarchy. Now, of course, there are differences between husbands and wives that mean in certain situations one of you will need to defer to the other. Uh, the best example I could think of this as I was preparing this talk was when Heather was breastfeeding twins. Have you ever seen a, a woman breastfeeding twins? There is uh, a giant cushion that you have around yourself, and it's like you're carrying rugby balls. Um, if you've not seen it, it's extraordinary. Uh, act of skill and compassion. Heather told me we need to get a particular type of cushion to do this. Now I did not say, my dear, I don't, I don't think we do. It's a partnership, both of our voices are equal, I think you can make do with the cushions we've got. What I said was, love, you know what you're talking about. We'll get whatever cushion you want. Fundamentally, Christian marriage is a union of equals working together and taking decisions together. It means that those who are married need to talk about everything. Everything. Paul talking here about sex. He's talking about your sex lives. You need to talk about it. It goes down to money, work, how you're feeling. We need to be open with one another about what we think. We need to take time and trouble to be interested in one another. Scripture speaks of a particular responsibility on husbands to use the physical and the social capital that they have to uh, bring out and to create space for their wives to flourish. Right? As a guy, it's easy for me to shut down conversation. If you're a husband, your job is to use your physicality, your, your social capital, the capital you have in work, the chance that you have to advocate for your family, to create space for your wife to flourish as an equal. As an equal. It means not shutting down her voice, but listening to it and treating it with at least equal weight to your own. Wives, it might mean something in your background that that encourages you to be reluctant to speak up or voice opinions about certain issues. Now, my generation, I think, struggle with this perhaps less than older generations do, I think. That perception that actually there are certain issues that it's not proper for women to have uh, opinions about. I watch a lot of Hercule Poirot. Um, I'm not ashamed, I love it. I'm actually on a project this year from September to read every single Hercule Poirot story in chronological order. Um, I find it relaxes me. What you'll notice is that uh, in the Poirot stories, there's very often a moment where the men go for brandy and cigars to discuss politics and the uh, life of the house. And uh, the women all go off together to play bridge. Yeah, they all play bridge. And that is totally different from a Christian understanding about how marriage works. 
The idea that women should be in one space and men should be in the other and women are allowed to have opinions about one thing and men are allowed to have opinions about another is totally different. And you're going to have to work at that. Why is it like this? Well, it pictures our relationship with Jesus Christ. You might not be surprised to hear. Christ wants to work with you. Uh, Those of you who've been around Christian circles a long time will have heard the grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the Father and the Holy Spirit, the partnership of the Holy Spirit, fellowship of the Holy Spirit, different ways of putting it. God works with us and through us. Paul puts it in Philippians. He says, uh, I thank God that I worked harder than anybody, but it was not me who worked. It was the grace of God working through me. There is a synthesis there. How can that happen if we are not praying? Just as husbands and wives need to cultivate that space to talk with each other and work with each other, so too every believer needs to cultivate that time and space to work with God. To work with God. Now it's not to say that God can't work on his own. Of course he can. But he chooses to work with you. With us. To talk with us, to deliberate with us. And yet very often he finds that we're too busy to work with him. It is as if we are the equivalent of a partner in a marriage who is too consumed with the rest of his life to actually spend time with his wife. Jesus Christ loved himself and gave himself for us and wants to work with us and yet finds very often that we're too busy to work with him. It requires priority. Do not deprive each other, Paul says, except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come again together, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. Paul makes a concession here. He says there are very limited circumstances in which you can deprioritize your marriage for a very short amount of time where it is uh, bringing you both closer to God. But it is a concession, not an aspiration. In our context, this needs to be reiterated. We must not deprive our marriage of the attention it needs for the sake of other things. Work and a career are not as important as marriages. Other friends or family are not as important as marriages. Football or dancing or any other hobby is not as important as marriage. Hear me when I say this, because I I, I endorse and have promoted spiritual growth. It's my job. Even your spiritual lives need to be constructed in a way that supports your marriage. Don't imagine that deprioritizing your marriage for the sake of your spiritual life is a spiritual thing to do. It is not. By all means, pursue these things. Have work in a career, have friends and family, go to football, go to dancing, pursue hobbies. Please do develop a joint spiritual life. But not at the expense of building up your relationship with your spouse. Again, it's a picture of our relationship with Jesus Christ. 
throughout our lives, we are tempted to put other things ahead of Christ. Your relationship with Christ will not grow if you do not prioritise it. And that's going to mean saying no to some things. I've said before how for my father, who I admire immensely, it meant saying no to promotion at work. Both his marriage and his job for Christ, he, he preached in churches, meant that he had to say no to promotion in his secular job. For others, it might be as trivial as saying no to an extra hour of TV so that you can talk with your partner and then you can pray. Or yes to getting up 20 minutes earlier. And throughout these instructions, Paul is talking about sex, actually explicitly talking about sex. I've not gone into that in any depth, as I've spent more hours discussing it over the last few months than for the rest of my life. All I would point out is that if you want to build a healthy marriage, that will need to have, include a mutually satisfying sex life. Married couples need to talk about this. It has to be discussed because it is important in binding partnerships together. Again, it's about Christ in the church. Your relationship with Christ is designed to be fruitful. If it's not producing anything in your life or in the lives of others, then there's a problem. So what then are marriages that struggle? I'm going to be much quicker with this. Well, before we look at Paul's instructions, I want to say as clearly as I can that domestic violence and abuse are abhorrent and intolerable. If you're experiencing abuse, then find someone you can trust, speak to them, get out of the situation. If you know someone experiencing abuse, help them to get safe. Okay, I'm going to talk about the importance of supporting marriages. Nothing I say should be taken as endorsing, encouraging someone to stay in an abusive relationship. They should not. I want to say that at the beginning as clearly as I possibly can. Paul lived in a time when divorce was easy and marriage was considered cheap and disposable. It was as easy as saying, tuas res tibi hebato. That's my Latin. I know what you're thinking. The accent's wrong. <laughs> Take your things and go. On some tablets, guys did not even have to write out the words. They just did the initials. I'm not joking. The Roman philosopher Seneca lamented that, his t- that at this time, many women, I'm going to quote this in English, Reckon their years by the number of their husbands, they leave their home to marry, and they marry in order to divorce. And the same was true of men. It's a background of quick and easy disposable marriage. Against this background, Paul affirms the permanence of Christian marriage, yet with the compassion of a pastor. Christians who are married to one another should not divorce. To the married, he says, I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. If two people are walking with Christ, if they're willing to pursue the interests of the other first, then there should always be a way through the difficulties of married life. I've counselled couples whose marriages are struggling. What I've found is nearly always the problem comes down to communication. They just stop talking. If you are a Christian in a marriage and you're committed to your partner's good, then there should always be a way to talk through it. Moreover, Paul says it is never legitimate for Christians to divorce one another in order to marry someone else. You cannot trade up. 
I remember uh, when I was at university, this must be 15 years ago, uh, being in a friend of mine's room, he said to me, uh, have you seen this article in my uh, girlfriend's Cosmo magazine? And the article was entitled, If I lost three stone, I'd trade up my man. You know, unbelievable. This is one of the reasons I don't read Cosmo. Not the only one. Christians can't trade up. I'm sorry, it's out of the question. It flies in the face of everything we believe about marriage. It, it flies in the face of the portrait of Christ and the church, of Jesus' instructions about the importance of keeping our promises. I'm labouring the point because it's very different to the way our culture sees it. And divorces between practising Christians will happen. Here's where the grey comes. Paul recognises that there will be circumstances where this happens. It will often happen without obvious blame. Yet it is, we should recognise, a tragedy that can be avoided in most cases. Even where the pain of separation or divorce has been felt, there remains the possibility of reconciliation for those who are willing to talk, even to repent. We are a people who believe in reconciliation, and we should live like it. What then of Christians married to non-Christians? Well, this worried the Corinthians. They read the Old Testament, you see, and they saw that you shouldn't, you know, the people of Israel who were God's people shouldn't be married to the people around them. And there were periods where they got married and they had to get unmarried. And they said, well, hang on a minute, should we then divorce our non-Christian partners? Are we in sin otherwise? Well, Paul says no. I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to read this. I'm going to leave it on the screen. If your partner is content to stay with you, Paul says, then stick at it. Rather than your faith being polluted or in some sense invalidated by your relationship, you bring Christ into the house. The best way I can put this is, in the Old Testament, if you touched something that was unclean, you became unclean. Right? So, you saw this with certain, actually it was a uh, medical thing, with uh, certain types of disease. If you touched someone who had a certain type of disease, often spoken about as leprosy, it embraced a whole range of diseases, you became unclean. You then needed to stay away from people for a certain period so that they could quarantine you, basically. And you couldn't go into the holiest places and all the rest of it. When Jesus came, he actually started to touch people with leprosy and instead of him becoming clean, they became, sorry, instead of him becoming unclean, Polluted by them, they became clean, purified by him. So he would walk up to people with leprosy and he would touch them and their leprosy would vanish. And Paul says that something like that is happening in Christian households where one partner is a Christian and the other is not. You're bringing the presence of Christ with you. Your spouse and your children encounter him through you. It doesn't mean they don't need to encounter him for themselves, they do. But you being there means they have a chance to do that. You're like a bridge into that house for Jesus Christ. Now that doesn't mean I would recommend marrying a non-Christian if you're a Christian. Paul doesn't and I wouldn't. I've seen it cause no end of heartache. When I used to row at Cambridge, which was not for very long, because I was not good at it and it meant getting up in the mornings. My wife, I will get up in the morning for a bow rowing boat on a river, I will not. Okay, I make no bones about that. I'm not willing to sacrifice my sleep. Uh, there was a moment where we were cruising down the cam and uh, someone turned around and said, it doesn't get any better than this. And I thought to myself, if it doesn't get any better than this, I'm not coming again. Because I'm waiting for the better. And apparently it's not coming. If you're in a rowing boat and you're facing in different directions and you're both trying to row, you'll find you go nowhere. That was the first lesson. Everybody needs to be facing in the same direction. 
What you find if you have um, if you have a Christian who's committed to their faith and wants to walk on with God, and they marry consciously marry someone who's not in that position, there will be times where you're facing in different directions, both trying to row as hard as you can. And that can be incredibly frustrating. I'm being honest with you about what I've observed in pastoral ministry. But if you find yourself in that boat, don't get out or throw the other person out. Paul is saying the solution is not to drown your spouse or even to separate from them. Don't give up or despair. Christ is in the boat with you. And he might use you to turn your spouse around so that you're both rowing in the same direction. Yet Paul says, if if your spouse separates from you, don't be afraid. You're not enslaved. You are in a family that will take care of you. You haven't sinned. You see, this is pastory complex. This is Paul the pastor speaking. Life is difficult and it's messy. And we're trying to walk with Jesus together through it. Now, there are applications for everyone. And with this, we're going to move into communion. First, whatever situation you find yourself in, seek God and do his work. We are a family, and our family business is to share the love of Christ with the world and to make disciples. As Paul says in verse 29, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that time is short. For now on, if you have a wife, live as if you don't. If you mourn, live as if you don't. If you're happy, live as if you weren't. If you buy something, live as if you didn't. I'm paraphrasing. Whatever he's saying is, look, in your present circumstances, keep your eyes on Jesus, not on the circumstance, and serve him. Spread his good news. Participate in his mission. Evangelize your neighbours. If you are a husband and wife, your job is to do this together. Your priority as a family is to seek God together and glorify him in the world. Second, we can all honour marriage. We can be radically committed to supporting and sustaining marriages. If you are married, let me ask you, how are you doing? Too often, we do marriage preparation before we get married. We don't do marriage checkups when we are married. It's the equivalent of somebody who buys a car and is absolutely certain it works when they leave the garage and then never takes it to the garage for a service. If you own a car like that, let me tell you what happens to it. It breaks down. If you do not get it serviced, it will break down. How are you doing? Do you spend time with each other? Do you talk about how you feel? Do you make space for physical intimacy? Do you put your spouse and your family ahead of your career, ahead of your parents, ahead of your hobbies? If you find yourself and the answer to those questions is no, I would suggest the way you go about changing that is to resolve, first of all, to put your spouse first. To seek to love them. Then make space to talk. And be honest. Do you know what the hardest part of talking to one another is? Listening. The way you talk to someone is to shut up, if I can put it brutally. I want to hear how you are feeling and I promise that I will not speak for two minutes. And then the next person, I promise that I will not speak for two minutes. 
After that, you might find that once you start talking, that physical intimacy returns quite quickly. Single people, there are challenges to being married. Right? I'm not going to patronise you by, by patting you on the head and saying, oh, single people, isn't it terrible to be single? No, you guys have got amazing privileges and I need you to use them. You've got time. You've got careers you can pursue. You've got time to pray for your brothers and sisters who are Christians. You've got time to go and ask them how they're doing. It is enormously emotionally draining to be responsible for other people. Ask anybody who's a parent of a small child and they will tell you how emotionally draining it is to be completely responsible for another person. If you are single, then you have an opportunity to pass to the people around you. Right? We are a family and you are not passengers. We need you. We need your friendship and support and encouragement, just as you need ours. Finally, this is most deeply about Christ and the church. Each one of us who follows Christ is part of his bride. He loves us with a self-giving, sacrificial, God-glorifying love. He will not leave us or forsake us. He wants a partnership with us through his spirit. He's done all that for us. How will we respond to him? Let's be quiet.